probably the best second half in-game stuff left is basketball totals. Even in the NBA, like I would, if anyone out there is, is trying to bet the NBA, I would suggest starting with like first half, second half total stuff with teams. There's still some mistakes I think made in those markets. Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm Matt Landis and this week's episode brings you part one of two from my recent conversation with professional better and ESPN alum Preston Johnson, also known as Sports Cheetah. We dive into the art and science of betting, including perhaps the biggest edge we'll find as bettors when it comes to NFL teasers, the specific timing might surprise you with that one. And we also touch on some do's and don'ts when it comes to in-game wagering and bankroll management. Preston and I also discuss his experience building and engaging with a mainstream audience, and we get to hear the rarely told origin story behind his Sports Cheetah nickname. Heads up to tune in next week for more from Preston, including his off-season preparation process for the NFL and college football, as well as a deep dive into his truly engaging new show, Last Word Cheetah. In the meantime, I'd highly encourage you to check out Last Word Cheetah. You can find more information in the show notes. One housekeeping note, friendly reminder that if you're craving NBA action as the playoffs progress, DraftKings Sportsbook is Dimers.com's official NBA odds partner for the playoffs, and to celebrate, they're giving new customers who join DraftKings via Dimers.com $200 in free bets if their first $5 NBA playoff money line bet wins. Simply head to Dimers.com, find the offer on the homepage, and click through to get a free $200 if and when your first $5 NBA playoff money line bet cashes. All right, and now, enjoy part one of my conversation with the sports cheetah, Preston Johnson. Preston Johnson, welcome to Props and Hops. It's such an honor to be having this conversation with you. Thanks for making time to connect. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate people trying to start the grind, do their own shows, do their own pods, and just get the word out there. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. No problem at all. Yeah, well, I'm fascinated to dig into so many topics we can cover. I know you have a lot of good insight to offer, and I'd like to start off the top with a bit in your background and for starters, I'll mention that people probably know if they're listening to this, but you're a very frequent guest on Bet the Process. You've also done good interviews with Ed Fang on the Football Analytics Show and with Drew Dinsick and Andy Molitor on the Deep Dive Podcast, among many other appearances. And um, listeners might know, I mean, Ed Fang, Drew Dinsick, Andy Molitor, previous guests here on this show. So I will try to nice. advance those conversations rather than repeat too much of it. So hopefully we can cover some new ground here. And on that note, um, when it comes to your presence in the sports gambling space, especially on Twitter, I feel like if there was a Mount Rushmore of sports gambling Twitter, there's a very strong case for you to be prominently featured there, if for no other reason than to get that beard chiseled into some rock. But yeah, overall, I'd love to touch on uh, how you how you got the Sports Cheetah nickname and, and built that presence and, mm-hmm. and what your approach has been to Twitter over the years. Sure. So I'm all for the beard on Mount Rushmore. That's actually, that sounds pretty good. Uh, the, I guess start to the whole name was in college. 
near the end. Uh, anyway, we were, we were going every year to Las Vegas from where I was in Utah for school for the first weekend of March Madness. We would go watch games in Vegas, a group of friends and I, and just randomly out of the blue, one of the Saturdays we were there. I think I had won four or five in a row. And one of my friends just like randomly blurted out after like a George Mason upset, like the sports cheetah. And I don't know why he just said that. And it was just like a really random thing. So we, we life goes on a couple of years later. Uh, when I first had kind of gotten introduced to some sort of like, there's a gambling Twitter that exists. This is probably like 2012 or so. Uh, I wrote a piece for Todd Furman used to have a blog called, uh, Todd's takes, maybe something like in that regard. And he, he wanted to have like unique approaches to betting. And I said, Hey, I'm, I have a background in sports psychology and I, you know, I have something I think that would be good. I posted a blog. He's like, all right, well, what's your Twitter handle? I didn't want to use my like, actual name Twitter handle that I, my personal account. So I created one. And the first thing that came to mind was, Oh yeah, I remember like last year, my friend called me the sports cheetah. So I just put at sports cheetah. The rest is history. Like it just went from there, but I, I had no intention for it to get to the point or to where it's at now, but that's kind of what it turned into. And so it just, it just came from a random trip to Vegas and winning a couple games. Yeah. It's funny. Cause even when I had drew on, I listened to some of his prior interviews and he'd mentioned getting the moniker whale capper and he said that when he was getting into space, he just figured a lot of people had some cool animal spin in their name, and <laughs> it, it might have all trickled back down to that trip to Vegas in, in a pretty uh, coincidental moment. It has maybe led to something much bigger. So, yeah, when it comes to you know the being known as the sports cheetah and really building a following and engaging with people so well on Twitter, how much of that would you say was just an organic part of how you naturally communicated with people and maybe being in the right time and place and how much of it has been a pretty conscientious effort on your part to, to really build a community as you're growing yourself as a better and a just content creator across so many media forms. That's a great question. I haven't necessarily thought through, basically I think you're kind of asking like, why did I have some success or why am I like, you know, at the point where I'm at now, like what was my focus? I'll, I'll say that the first thing and it's it's like the arrogant one but it, when i was posting stuff and if i don't know if you were around back in 2012 when i so I, I created that twitter account for this blog post but then i actually started posting pics there and this probably never ever happens if i the first 16 bets i ever posted publicly won so i went from maybe a couple hundred followers because of a blog post I had to like 3000 to 4,000 followers in a week, just because I couldn't lose a freaking bet. And a few of them, it was during summer. I remember some of it was uh, like MLB dogs. I remember Oakland days one, one day it was like plus 183. So it was like 16 and 0 plus 19 units or something. It's just an insane run. I've never won 16 bets in a row since, and this is, you know, nearly a decade ago. And so that's really, I think, what what got it is if like you're posting stuff and it actually does well, then you're just going to have people and have eyes on you. And so I kind of just harnessed the the pressure and those eyes and um, went from there. But I, I think the kind of tying it then to, you know, how from the media side and even pre ESPN and just what I was doing podcasts for fun or I'd love to do radio spots. I, I think I, I I have fun talking things through and just kind of talking through my approach and, and, you know, shooting the, you know, what with friends or whatever. But um, a lot of it is, I think, trying to just, you know, be informative for an audience that's really trying to get better at this good portion of the questions or DMS or whatever I, that I may get. Um, I think there's people that want to be able to do this on their own and, and get better at it. And so they're like searching for just, you know, guidelines or, or avenues and pathways to devising their own 
um, approach. And I loved kind of trying to bridge that gap between someone that's just trying to learn and get better at it and like is willing to kind of grind a little bit, right? Not just someone that wants, there's plenty of people that just want to pick and then that's the end, right? But people that are really trying to learn and then me like, you know, being able to talk through some of the processes behind it and the reasoning behind it and kind of seeing the light bulb go off for some people and then just kind of seeing that, that, uh, context, I think is, is what helped me kind of just eventually love. Cause I, I'm not even lying. I, when I applied, um, before when you do a master's, uh, work in, in, after in university, after uh, my undergrad, you have to take a GRE for psychology, um, to make sure you're like competent enough. It's like the SAT, but for a master's program. And I think they thought I was an international student because my math great. Like I always get the perfect scores on the math and my reading comprehension stuff is so bad. I, I like, like remarkably awful. So why was I studying psychology and writing and reading a lot? I have no idea, but I'll say this. I eventually came to love the writing and actually a process. I started doing a college football guide, I think like in 2014 that um, got pretty popular. I would sell a bunch of those, but it was kind of like the Phil Steele college football guide, but for betters and like a betting approach and pricing and season win totals and futures and everything. So like it started with that and they kind of built from there, but I, I just kind of, my love changed from like the math analytics to actually, you know, talking things through, writing things. And then that eventually just kind of doing a bunch of stuff led to the opportunity with ESPN in the last few years. Yeah. I think you touched on some really important points there. One of which being, um, you mentioned maybe a little arrogant, but I think also having the humility to acknowledge you haven't won that many bits, bets in a row since that hot streak to start everything off. <laughs> there might be some survivorship bias in play. Again, I, I've heard Drew mentioned that last week I had Fabian Summer on the show and he talked about mm-hmm. um, when he started posting picks publicly for the first time, he had the best year of his life and he hasn't replicated that since and he still had some really good success. But when you start off so hot that as much as we can talk about the process and this being a marathon, not a sprint, when people see somebody just coming out of the gate so hot, it's really hard to ignore. So Definitely something to kind of try to leverage, but at the same time manage expectations that that's not the norm that people should oh, yeah. expect for a sustainable period of time. I'm and, pretty sure. Yeah, you're you're like kind of getting at. I'm sorry to interject, but you're getting at like first sure. impressions matter a lot, which is true. And I even remember maybe after winning 10, 11, 12 in a row, just telling people like like you know bet the other side. Like there's no way I keep winning more, right? It's it's just you're right. People expect that. They kind of like some sort of level of expectation that's just not realistic. That. um we try to meet, but the key is, and I think everyone hates thinking long-term and hates being process-oriented when they're approaching this stuff, but ultimately anything can happen over 16 bets. I had, I bet college football like seriously for 11 seasons now. And this last year, the three worst Saturdays I've had in 11 seasons occurred in the first six weeks of college football last year, or maybe it was the first seven weeks. Regardless, the three worst ROIs and, and like, you know, we're talking 15 weeks times 11 seasons, like the three worst we're all in a month and a half. It just, it's so brutal to get through a downswing like that, but also like it makes you appreciate the upswings and it's just part of the whole variance game. And then I, you know, I'd never win at the end of the season and bowl season. It just always seems like it's a coin flip game. A lot of the edge is gone and I finished last year, 23 and four, like it just couldn't miss, you know, down the stretch. So that stuff just happens. And it's just part of, I think what people that are trying to, you know, get serious about gambling as a whole, whether it's poker or DFS or betting, um, yeah, the, the mindset stuff and the kind of why I, I enjoyed studying psychology and applying it in general to betting too is uh, I think it goes a long way if you're going to be a successful gambler, just being able to 
to handle those swings that just sometimes they're really bad. Sometimes they're really good, but just as easily you don't want to, if you're on a super hot streak, you don't want to start over betting stuff just because you're hot either, right? You want to stay within your parameters or your bankroll management. And so there's a lot of, you know, steps and variables involved, but um, yeah, def- people definitely want something once they see it happen. And it's just usually not realistic in that sense. Yeah. As you walk through that process, I'm reminded of a story I've heard Steve Fezzik tell where, he had, I believe, a course at some point, maybe in college, where the assignment, I think, was literally to flip a coin something like a 1,000 times or 10,000 times and document the results. And the way that the professor knew whether they had actually done the work is if they're not seeing a run of 10 or 12 or more consecutive heads or tails, then somebody didn't actually put in the time. Because in the long run, you're going to hit those streaks for better or worse. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate your point of just taking it in stride when it's good and when it's bad and staying level-headed about it. And to that end, I'm curious how this might intertwine with your master's in sports psychology, because I think on the math side of things in your background, that might be really good for projection. But when it comes to psychology, it seems like maybe you could do a little bit more introspection to you know keep yourself in the game over the long haul with the highs and the lows. It's big, man. And I've actually personally like had some highs and lows in that regard because I, 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 I bring up that downswing, but it was like pretty brutal for me. Like for two months, I like, I was like, is this just it? Like college football has always been my bread and butter, my biggest ROI as far as sport and league. And luckily I had those like the last month, <laughs> like at least balance it out where on the season, I, I think I've, I ended up very slightly down. So I was, I was thrilled with that obviously after the finish, but it took a toll on me. And then it was during like weird. COVID and quarantine. It was just, it was just a weird year in general anyway. So like, and, and I was moving from Vegas down here to Southern California. It was just, it was like kind of hectic, but to kind of, you, the word introspection is perfect because I kind of went back to my roots where whether it's, you know, I put, I have a master's degree in sports college. One, because it's true. It is kind of cool. I like to brag about it or I at least did, you know, a decade ago, but it's not like I, suddenly can watch a game and just know what's going to happen because a player looks one way or a coach does something like it. There's no like secret formula you get from having a master's degree when it comes to betting. But I, you do learn a lot in my undergrads in psychology as well, as far as just the mindset and ability to, I think be level headed, like you were alluding to earlier. And then when I was playing poker initially, which was even before I was betting, I only turned to betting because poker was shut down in the United States. I was playing online pretty frequently and I had a bankroll from that, which I didn't want to move out of the country. I was still in school. So, like, okay, well, I might as well use it to gamble on something. So as I started betting on sports anyway. So uh, that's kind of the connection there where even to be a poker player, especially online, like there were pretty strict parameters where I'm playing like up to six tables at one time at these stakes with this amount of my bankroll. And every few hours you're kind of looking and based on where I'm at, I'm adjusting, you know, what size games I'm playing. And it was extremely like formulaic. And I kind of just took that approach. I think, unfortunately, uh, I was too conservative probably when I first started betting just because um, I, I I was using, I think uh, an approach from poker that was probably good for me when it came to poker, but I could have been more aggressive for betting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's extremely important in respect. And so anyways, I, I get, I'm kind of going full circle here, but this last football season, it was good. And, and this year I've, I've done, I've like set a weight loss goal because I did gain some weight. I was already big anyway, but I gained some weight last year and I wanted to actually hit um, losing 50 pounds here in 2021. I wanted to, start doing stuff that was kind of refreshing mentally. So I started doing like cryotherapy, whole body cryotherapy. I'm not sure if you even know what that is, but like LeBron James has one of these machines in his house, but you just basically get in a freezer that's at like negative 200 degrees and you just sit in it for like three minutes and then you get out. And it's like extremely mentally like alert 
just goes way up. And um, supposedly there's physical benefits. I don't know if they're real or not, but regardless, you just feel good coming out. I started doing like infrared saunas more frequently. I started doing uh, float tanks, which I had done pre COVID, but I've just started to do stuff to try to make sure my mental game is like at the peak, just kind of like trying to optimize performance as a whole, whether you're a gambler or not, if you're, you know, high stakes CEO of a business, whatever, like there's always, I think opportunities to just make sure you're, the level head, the mindset, everything's in place. And then you can trust that if that's in place, everything else you kind of make decisions on and that decision-making process will be, you know, optimized or at least as good as it can be. Yeah. The, I mean, that's some next level stuff. I'm, I'm just trying to get myself consistent with colder showers or spending some time on an acupressure mat, but yeah. I love the routine you're going through. And to your point, that can translate across a lot of different walks of life. If nothing else, just to try to stay sharp sure. and be at the top of your game, whatever that game may be. And you touched on a lot of things I'll try to circle back on throughout the course of this conversation, but um, sticking with the level-headedness required to ride this out over the long haul, I'm reminded of almost every weekend I've ever spent in Vegas, there would be, you know, maybe one day where I can't lose and one day where I can't win. And it's, if I go, let's say, whether it's blackjack or betting sports or whatever the case may be, um, you know, if, if I'm betting 10 football games in a weekend, five in college, five in the NFL, it's, it, there's probably one day that's five and oh, four and one, one day that's oh, and five, one and four. And it almost always comes out to about the same. I, I always leave uh, about even. And <laughs> typically if it's betting sports, more likely to have a bit of a profit than blackjack or something where there's a, a house take that you can't really work around. But at the same time, um, I think it's important to know, like, yes, in the long term, these small holds, you know, are, are, fairly small, but in a small sample size, anything yeah. can happen. And how does that work in, you know, kind of maybe sticking with the psychology background, deciding to go pro as a better, uh, knowing that some of these streets are just unsustainable for better or worse, but committing to making a living in this line of work and, and really grinding it out through the long haul. What was that thought process like when you went pro? Um, that's another good question. I, I come from a really conservative background, religious background. My parents like didn't even know I was betting and gambling until like a few years after I'd already been doing it regularly. And like, I just was like super cautious with what I wanted to even tell them. And um they're really cool now. It's like no problem. They obviously understand what I do, but the, the, that background, I think kind of kept me reserved um for a long time. And also probably part of the reason I was more cautious early on when my edge was bigger and probably cost myself money in the long run. Right. But um, kind of going to, I guess, your, your point in question, how did I make the decision? I think kind of all this ties into, I think comfortability is extremely important. And like, it's really cliche to say betting within your means, but it's, that's, that's what it's about. Like you just can't put yourself in a bad spot. Uh, I got married pretty young. Um, I have two kids now. And so that also kind of helped like me, you know, kind of mindset where like family's first family's important. Um, but we did, we were married for four or five years before we even had kids. And like my wife was working for a while too. So like that, she, that, that was like one thing, like if you're single and you don't have someone else bringing in money, it's a lot harder to then take the income, the money, the liquidity you do have and then risk it all because you don't have a way to like actually pay for your mortgage or rent or whatever or food. So I have to thank her or the fact that she actually had, you know, a job to bring in money while I was betting because I could be a little more risk, uh, take a little more of a risk rather than being more risk averse. Um, a lot of people, again, they're not married in their mid twenties. And so they probably can't afford to do that. So it's extremely dependent, I think on each person. But for me, it, uh, it was, it was pretty, it was made pretty easy after a couple of years because I had people approaching me to 
get down for me and for themselves. And they, they, they were, uh, understood the value of what I was doing, especially in, in college football and wanted to just be a part of it. And so I started getting some like risk-free deals and percentages on guys that were getting down and working with groups internationally that ultimately made it extremely <laughs> easy for me to say yes and not have to work about anything else. Cause then I could end up, you know, making a really good living and being, you know, not risking 110 to 100, but, you know, getting a 25% free roll on like, you know, college football stuff for, for some groups. So it was that, that, that definitely helped where if you, if you actually have an edge and it's something that's worthwhile, people will approach you or they'll, they'll, they'll seek you out rather than, all right, I got to hope it's good. And then just kind of like, you know, put all your chips on the table, so to speak. So it's, it's definitely, it's a nuanced question and answer because it's dependent on everybody's situation and life stability and everything. But um, I think I was just blessed and lucky that I, I you know, I had a, a wife that was working and then, that my, my college football was good enough that other people were willing to put in front the money up. Yeah, I really like that answer because it touches on the nuance involved. So often we think things might be more black and white than they are. And okay. there are certainly factors beyond most people's control that could work for or against them. In your case, you know, having your wife and a support system in place that enabled it. And at the same time, I do see a common thread when I asked Rob Pizzola this question a little while ago, he mentioned having people reach out to him because he was unknowingly moving the market. When yeah, he would tweet something in baseball market and people are like, dude, you got to stop doing that. Let's just work together. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. I also like your point that if it's good enough, people could seek you out. So uh, that's, that's a good way to think of like really honing your own edge and then also being open to networking with other people. And, and sometimes there can oh, be you know, sure. power in numbers with pooling resources. Yep. That's gone a long way. Definitely. I've bet with plenty of people that, um, like not there are a lot of guys that aren't even on Twitter or have like a face on Twitter just because they kind of like to keep low key and stay underground, so to speak. But it's uh networking is massive if you're really trying to take what you're doing to another level and just kind of um, monetize it, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's interesting world, man. It's, it's funny. Even just uh, earlier today, I had someone in um, on my show that uh, just, I haven't actually seen in a couple of years, but I've just known him for, you know, since Twitter, gambling Twitter existed for me in 2012. So it's just funny seeing how many paths angles there have been for, for people and how they got to where they are. But uh certainly network as much as you can always be talking to other people that you know are betting. Even if it's like, if you think you're so dumb and like you're, you're just wondering like, why is this line this or like, it's, it's totally cool. Like you, I, you need to fail so many times just to figure things out and to keep adjusting and getting better. And so never be afraid of that. I guess that'd be like my one, piece of advice for people networking just don't be like shy or afraid about looking stupid yeah that's really strong advice because taking that first step is often the scariest part of everything and if you think okay if everything goes wrong am i in any different of a situation than i'm right now and if things go right how much better could it be so mm-hmm. i strongly agree there and i'd also love to take a moment to dig into your betting process a little bit you've talked about college football kind of being your bread and butter but Across sports, I know game theory plays a pretty big role. I heard you speak to it uh, way back in your first appearance on Bet the Process. And since then, you've had three more years to continue putting it into practice. And I'd love it if you could describe how you view game theory and the role that it takes in your betting approach. Sure. I'm not sure. I probably, I, I don't remember exactly what I said when, when I was on Bet the Process and they asked about it. Uh I may have tried to make it sound cooler than it is. Like people think game theory, it's like this cool term. And it's really though, there is game theory in the market itself, I think. And you're, you're ultimately, once you're betting at a level where 
you know, getting down at certain times is important and you're trying to gauge which direction a number might move, whether it be a total, whether it be a side um, for football. So for example, for college football, you know, the majority of the games are on Saturday and you have from Sunday evening to Saturday morning to decide when the best time to bet a certain side or total is. And there's just a lot of figuring out and, and reading the market that I kind of consider like a game theory uh, approach that is you know beneficial if you're able to do it well. And also the networking kind of goes a long way too in the sense that you get ideas of when certain people like to go, when, when they like to actually start betting and, you know, the market moves against or moves for this person or this group, it doesn't, or this group, it tends to move, but then it always moves back a couple of days later. And so, you know, if you can, you know, it's, if, if you're angling and you have things circled, like I want this side or this total, you, you know, you start to just be able to read the markets relative to everybody else. And so I guess that's, I'm not sure if that's what I, I had said before on the podcast, but really I think it's just, just kind of figuring other people out because ultimately you're betting against the house, but you're also betting against the other people because you're trying to maximize your opportunity, which is getting the best number or being able to get the best number relative to how much you want to get down. So that means you can't bet Sunday nights anymore, which is something that like, I had to stop doing. Um, and I don't even bet Mondays. I don't think anymore either. So it's like Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, by the time we can get enough down what we want. But if we wait till Tuesday, I can't get plus seven anymore. I have to get plus six. Is it still worthwhile? So it's kind of gauging all that and just kind of assessing what the markets are doing, really what those sports books are doing. It's just kind of this constant give, push and pull from other people, yourself, the sports books. And um, I, I guess that's kind of where the game theory comes into play. Cool. Yeah. And it's not exactly what you had said a few years back, but I appreciate that because there's a lot of overlap. Some of the core components are still in place, but at the same time, again, you've had a few years to continue growing. And I think having a bit of a different answer can show that progression over time. And as you mentioned, this being a multiplayer game, I'm, you know, reminded of the logic of sports betting. I actually just finished reading it right before we hopped on to record this conversation. Nice. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, can't recommend it highly enough for anybody getting into this or even if somebody's kind of already entrenched in the betting space but hasn't read it yet. The logic of sports betting has so much good information. And, and yeah, a big part of it is it's not always just you against the book, but there's a whole marketplace in play and you might be better off waiting until a Tuesday or Wednesday to get more down on a certain number. Whereas people much earlier on in the journey, if they can prepare accordingly, openers are their time to strike because that's before price discovery has taken place and lines are really hammered into place. So um, to that end, a lot of edges at various points of anybody's career arc in betting, a lot of edges can be fleeting. And I'm wondering through your experience, how you've been able to identify maybe during some cold streaks when something's just natural variance rearing its ugly head or when an edge may indeed be gone. Sure. I think closing line value still is a pretty big indicator. And I'm sure they talked about that in the book, which I read a few years back pretty, pretty quickly, but I did read it once if they're listening. Um, actually I gave, I gave Matthew David a, a shout out today on my show because he, he yes. tweeted about, about Taysom Hill MVP prop, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, he couldn't find it anywhere, but I was like, someone could put up like 500 to one. And I kind of think it's an okay bet, but uh, regardless, um, moving to that, uh, lost my train of thought for a second. You're talking about. Oh, edges and how you can tell whether something's Thank variance you. or closing it might have dried yeah. up. So even during those like six or seven weeks last college football season, it was just, it was just like, I just had so many like three and eight, three and 10 like weeks. And I just don't know how, but like you actually go through and it's like, okay, well, I'm beating the close 
you know, on average for totals by 2.7 points and my sides are still, you know, almost, you know, point and a half ahead. Like it, that's the indicator is that the market, the most efficient market price that's public is the closing number right before kickoff or right before first pitch or, or first tip for, for basketball. So you're following that. It, it's extremely um, worthwhile if you're not already incorporating that into what you're doing, if, if you're trying to bet. But um, that was the biggest like thing is like, okay, well, you're still getting a good, uh, value and expected ROI relative to the closing line. And so you just kind of got to push through it. And that's just kind of where you can chalk it up to variance. Part of it, which was weird is because it was also a weird season. It was um, COVID stuff. And I feel like the COVID moves like performed extremely under expectation. You find out that half the defense is out and, you know, Kansas state goes from, uh, it's like a Mississippi State, Kansas State game off the top of my head. I, I feel like it was uh, week two or week three that moved, you know, eight points and, you know, they lost outright despite, you know, being, uh, you know, going from minus four to minus 10. And, and it, um, that stuff's like deflating for sure because you're just getting so much value and then they're still losing. And it's just like, is the COVID thing just, is this just a coin flip game this season? What's going on? Uh, I think in the end, you still just need to respect no matter what that, you know, if people don't even understand, like you said, a lot of people listening are probably pretty well informed with the closing line. The, the reason I just think it's so important is if I'm betting and I have my own numbers, a lot of people that, you know, maybe are profitable long-term have a similar opinion, but probably on like 60 to 70% of it. But then if they have a different, differentiating opinion on 30 to 40% and you mix that with someone else and someone else, and there's just so many people out there betting into these markets that at the end of the day, whatever that line is at the end that no one thinks is worthwhile to bet anymore, that's probably the fair price, you know, barring an injury during the game. So going forward, a quarterback's out, that's going to change things. Right? There's, there's a couple a couple of things where late scratches happen, but just in general, I think it's a good uh, indicator that people should just always be constantly following upswings, downswings. There's, you can go win 10, 11 in a row and have negative CLV and just chuck it up to good luck. Like that, that happens plenty as well. So um, it goes both ways. Yeah, and, and not to just empty out all the knowledge I feel like I've accumulated over the years. I, I mean, I don't want to be fanboying out too much or trying to impress you, but another <laughs> book that's shaped my process as a better, maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, former pro poker player. Nope. Um, that one's been a, a game changer in multiple walks of life. And one of my biggest takeaways from uh, rereading it this NFL offseason was that just because something happened once doesn't mean that it was destined to happen or that it even would happen again if you were to follow the same exact process in a follow-up scenario. Mm -hmm. So in your case of closing line value, um, yeah, small sample size, 10 or 12 bets, you could lose against the closing line every time and still fare okay. And in the long run, I've come to sense that if I beat the closing line, then I've got a decent chance to win a bet. And if I haven't beaten the closing line, then I should probably kiss that money goodbye. Yeah, and you just think of it as a blessing if you actually do win those bets. Like, like even today... um Portland, the Denver game, right? Game six, NBA playoffs. I think Portland opened four. It got up to five and a half at Chris, for example, uh, at close. And, you know, Denver ends up coming back winning by double digits. Like not even, you know, it just happens. It's just part of the variance game, which it, it's also, I think one thing that's extremely hard for beginners to process and understand is just like we're betting things that we think against minus 110 maybe win 54, 55% of the time. Maybe, maybe so like in certain leagues, like college football, I'll have stuff earlier in the week. Maybe I expect to win like 57%. You know, those are bigger plays, but like, so in order to beat the minus 110, you need, you need to win, you know, 52.x percent just to break even 54, 55%. Like we're expect, we're betting on things we think are going to lose like 46%, 45% of the time. And it's really hard for, I think for people to kind of wrap their minds around that sometimes. 
and if you go in with that uh, idea or like going in with, you know, going back to a poker example, if you're getting it in with Kings against aces, I think you're only like 18% to win. Right. Or if you're on the other side and you're getting it in with aces, you're still going to lose like 18% of the time getting it in as, you know, neatly as possible. And it's just, it's just part of the game, like why we all love gambling in the end is because anything can happen at any point in time. And so it makes it fun, but it definitely also makes it hard if you can't just kind of think through it logically long-term in a vacuum. Yeah. And as you're talking about different prices and, and different odds on various types of bets or a game like poker, it, I think gives a natural segue into something I'd love to touch on with you. And that being NFL teasers. I know that's also something you touched on with. Ed Fang on the Football Analytics Show a little while back. And I, I think it's fascinating because minus 110 used to be the standard price point, but these days, good luck getting in a Wong teaser, crossing yeah. through three and seven in either direction for less than minus 120. I mean, there are still some books out there, but they're they're kind of an endangered species at this point, unfortunately. Um, but that said, I, I mean, another item that came through in the logic of sports betting and that any better has probably heard several times throughout their journey is to shop lines. I, I was able to stumble across a bet I discussed when I had Andy Molitor on the show a few weeks ago. The Washington football team found a rogue plus one and a half week one hosting the Chargers. So I was able to get them up through seven in a six point teaser, pair that with Miami up through three and seven to plus eight and a half at the Patriots. And that was at a book also offering minus 110. So one of those precious few. Um, so wow. that, that was great to see. And, and that felt like one of few bets that I was just like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and lock this in now and, and let that bankroll sit for the next few months. But when it comes to teasers priced at minus 120, if they do follow that long model crossing through that corridor of three and seven in either direction, do you feel like there's still any value there? Or, or at what point do you just say, okay, it's a good angle, but at this price, it's probably too much to overcome? You know, I've, ah, I wish I had looked it up uh, right before we hit record. I could have exa- I actually looked kind of more historically what the exact percentages are. I, I'm guessing minus 120, it's not profitable in a vacuum to just tease through three and seven necessarily, but there's going to be certain instances depending on the total, like the lower totals, which we all know lower totals are better, right? Each point's worth a little bit more. So I'm guessing at minus 120, there's still a subset that's worthwhile. I couldn't tell you exactly what that like cutoff is. Um and after that, it's probably just not even worth bothering, which in like in Vegas, minus 120 is as good as you'll ever find anyway. Like there's places going minus 130, minus 140 for teasers. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. You made a note earlier when we were um, talking before we hopped on the show, which I'm not sure if you skipped it on purpose, but I'm intrigued because I haven't like gone back and looked at this before. Maybe you have, or maybe I read it wrong. I don't have it in front of me anymore, but you mentioned preseason football. And mm-hmm. teasers in preseason football. And so is that something that books regularly offer? One. And two, the reason why that is intriguing is the preseason NFL totals are just so low, right? You can, I, like you probably profitably teasing between seven and 10 if the total's 32 and a half or something. Like I, I have to actually like go back and check preseason stuff, which I've never done, but I'm not sure if, if that was what you were intending with that note you had made uh, before we hopped on live. But I thought that's really, um, interesting. So maybe someone out there can look into that. But if you can find teaser options for these preseason games where the totals are just even lower than normal, then at, at like minus 120 or minus 130, there probably are spots that's still ahead. Yeah, and that's something I was looking to build up to for sure. I mean, my, my biggest tip when it comes to teasers is that, I mean, preseason is the season to be teasing because those underdogs going up through three and seven and games with low totals with less implied variance, that's something that we just don't find nearly as often in the regular season. 
And the reason I hone in on teasing underdogs up when we're talking preseason, one and two are much more common margins of victory. And that's because teams will almost always go for two when they can avoid a tie. They want to just dodge overtime at all costs. So when we have lower totals with underdogs, we can cross through some key numbers, get less variance in play. I've even seen some books that charge, again, these are some offshores, more retail shops than market makers, of course. But I've seen books that go to minus 120 in the regular season, and they just drop minus 110 in the preseason, as if there's not already more value with the lower totals. That's interesting. I had never really caught on or looked for that before, but uh, definitely worth following people that are listening coming up, you know, in a couple months. Yeah, thank you. And any endorsement I can take from you when it comes to betting, I will take it and, and share it far and wide. I haven't looked at pre like preseason historical results, but like it, yeah, I mean, if you can get minus one tens on six point NFL teasers with totals in the thirties, like that's got to be automatic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think again that that win win of less variance plus a better price is huge. And even in cases where there isn't the better price available, most books probably will charge the same and it's probably going to be at least minus 120. But when there's that much less variance, it can still be actionable in a lot of cases. Yeah, for sure. I like that. Cool. Well, uh, sticking with teasers for one more moment, something else that I wanted to touch on when we think regular season, early in the week versus late in the week. And The reason I mention this question is because I know early you can beat line moves. So sometimes by kickoff, you're getting more than six points. But if you bet late, to your point earlier, closing line value, that's when the market is at its most efficient. So you're really minimizing the variance. So if you're if you're looking at teasers in the NFL, do you have preferred timing given those two kind of opposing factors? I This is a very intuitive assessment. So... You have to be extremely confident that you're going to beat the market more often than not. And by beat the market, I mean, you know, beat the move correctly. If you have a dog at plus two and a half and early in the week, you like the dog, you tease it up to eight and a half, you're getting through the three and the seven. If the market by Sunday is plus three, you're better off waiting and taking plus three and betting it straight than you were betting two and a half in a teaser on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever it may be. So you have to be pretty cognizant of your actual ability to be ahead of the NFL market to tease earlier in the week. If you're confident that that's going to be, you know, plus one by Sunday, then you absolutely should be teasing plus two and a half as soon as you can, or even plus two or plus one and a half, right? Like you want to get in sooner. If you're just brand new and you don't really know, but you know that you have an option and an avenue to get minus 110, six-point teasers in the NFL, wait until the market is pretty much set, you know, an hour before on Sunday. And then depending on where you can, you know, shop around and and, and get down at those prices, you can just understand that, hey, these market prices at this point in time, Sunday morning, are probably as efficient as they'll be. And I can trust that, you know, long-term this is going to pay dividends. And so you can just go that route um, because I think otherwise you're just kind of guessing and you're going to be stuck in some bad spots sometimes with movement from early or midweek to Sunday morning. So uh, that's, yeah, I think it's very dependent on the person, the better, and just kind of be aware of where you're at with what you're doing in the NFL. Um, you can even do like a test run for a season and just see, you know, where things would have been had you bet teasers on Monday or Tuesday versus had you waited and just kind of give your, you know, yourself a sense of where your, uh, I don't know if they call them leans or projections or whether whatever that person out there is doing to um, decide and determine what they're betting on, whatever their decision-making process is, you'll, you'll kind of learn if it's correct or not. Got it. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, a good way to sum it up. We can leave it there with teasers. And while I have you talking football betting, or this could apply to any sport really in game betting, 
something that definitely seems to be on the rise. And I, I know that that seems to be a pretty big part of your process as well. Just in general, how do you attack it for people who might be pretty comfortable betting pre-flop, but then when it gets to end game, uh, how do you look at things differently? Maybe your wager sizes change and, and you have to be more selective, but you can probably pick up some pretty decent edges. For a few seasons in college football, I'd bet all my second half stuff, for example, twice as big as I would bet my pregame stuff. So it's just for for a few years, and again, this is maybe four or five years ago, and it's just gotten so much sharper now in the second half market, that uh, now I bet less and I bet way less frequently than I used to. So it was just kind of a being able to assess where the edge is when and when the edge dries up. But for a while, second halves in college football were, were really, really strong. So um, I would be betting them more frequently. I'd be betting them for more money than I would a pregame. NFL, similar. I think three or four years ago, it got really tight there. And um, I think the probably the best second half in-game stuff left is basketball totals. And, and those are – even in the NBA, like I would, if anyone out there is, is trying to bet the NBA, I would suggest starting with like first half, second half total stuff with teams. There's still some mistakes I think made in those markets. Um, and you don't necessarily need like a player level model to decipher them. But, uh, in general, uh, you know, they've, the end game markets are way sharper. And, and I've been, I've been using second half as an example. You can also bet, you know, four minutes into the second quarter of a basketball game based on like a rotational change. Or if you see so and so like, uh, LeBron James is in foul trouble and now he has to go to the bench when he normally wouldn't. And, you know, the end game stuff is running on an algorithm based on the closing line, the current score, how much time's left. There's opportunities sometimes to take advantage there directly in game. But, uh, you know, for, for, for people that are doing it more seriously, it, it's, it's tough and, uh, for a few reasons. One, getting down enough for some people, it's just not worthwhile to bother. Uh, I, I always enjoyed the grind of, of betting in game, whether it was second half or actual in running, but books got more and more, I want to say this in a nice way, but they, they've done a much better job about letting the thing spin longer than they used to and waiting before they confirm your bet to where now you're just, you just know they're waiting a possession to see if the bet you wanted in game benefits them or not. And if they accept it and then, and then you see it on your TV a few seconds later that something happened against you and now you're taking a worse number than, so I, that started happening way more often where I don't really bother betting unless it's a commercial break where the markets are, you know, there's spots everywhere now with similar numbers and there's no way the book can just like put you on a 30 second spin to confirm your bet and find out like one or two possessions of a basketball game ahead of you. Um, so that, that, that's, I guess, one thing that's changed from what I was probably doing more regularly a few years ago versus where we're at now. Yeah, I think that last point is really important because oftentimes, even if you're just watching, especially on an HD TV, I mean, I had the honor of a lifetime working with David Malinsky a few years ago yeah, before yeah. his untimely passing. And he talked about a lot of games he wanted to look to bet in running. He would intentionally go standard definition just to compress that lag time. But often with in running, we've got, let's say, an 18-second delay on the TV feed, plus books adding their own delay of eight seconds or so. And then the hold percentage that they build in could be 6.5% in-game versus 4% pregame. So that's a lot to overcome. It's it's probably impossible. That's another bit I took away from the logic of sports betting. But for people like myself who might want to let somebody, you know, like you who's a pro just go to work and hammer home lines when halftime has that unique window of price discovery in game, a lot of times what books will do is, you know, they'll they'll turn off their algorithms 
that feed most of their in-game betting odds during halftime and just copy a market maker. And then let that number close. It might move a couple points, side or total. And then at the start of the second half, they flip the algorithm back on and it knows nothing about that halftime action. So some of the sharpest betting in-game in the world is not factored in and you might be able to pick off a couple points of value. So if you're not betting into a halftime opener, sometimes your best bet maybe let the Sharks duke it out, really hammer home the line, and then as soon as there's that timeout, again, so you're not dealing with that delay where they'll give you the bet if things break in their favor or they'll yeah. cancel the bet if it works in your favor, wait till there's a timeout, you're on a level playing field with the book as far as information is concerned, and then the algorithm they flip back on for the second half might give you an edge that didn't exist throughout much of halftime. Yeah, there's definitely a few books like just you explaining that off the top of my head. I can, you know, I can name a few where their, their in-game line as the second quarter of an NBA game or, or whatever is way different than where the market opens for the second half, which it should rel- you know, be relatively close. And then you can kind of eye that. Okay. Well, when they've turned that back on, when the third quarter starts, there may be a point or two to be had. And yeah, absolutely. If, if you can spot a few of those, those shops and can take advantage, I think that's, that's definitely one way to, let the price discovery happen, like you mentioned, half times. Let the market close to where it should be, and then compare it to where an in-game, you know, starts back up to start a second half. And uh, yeah, you might you might find something there. Yeah, and one thing I also wanted to circle back on you touched on it earlier, especially when I think of in-game, I think this increases in importance. That would be bankroll management, and you've touched on the balance of staying within your means but also not leaving money on the table because you want to maximize those edges while they last and and none of the good ones last forever. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could elaborate on that and how you approach bankroll management, not always meaning to be more conservative, but at the same time not getting overextended. Sure. So uh, a couple things I did incorrectly, in my opinion. I broke up my bankroll by league, which actually I still – okay, I'll, I'll – I'll, I'll start over a little bit. I think I correctly broke up my bankroll by league because I had a bigger edge betting college hoops and college football than I did, say, the NFL. And, and then the NBA actually was was pretty good. Uh, it's probably similar to college hoops. But um, it kind of allowed me to see where my strengths were. And so you should be betting accordingly. You should be betting more where you're stronger and less when, where you're not as strong. Um, but what I incorrectly did was I, I broke up my – like I pieced off my bankroll kind of in an incorrect – Format. So, for example, if I was betting five leagues, we'll count uh, Major League Baseball as well, I was doing regularly. Uh, I just used 20% of my bankroll for each. And even if I was betting bigger on one, I just wasn't actually putting as much money down. I was betting it bigger relative to my allotted amount. I also was having an allotted amount I'd piece off from that 20% for college football. I'd take like 5% of it and put it into preseason futures, like season win totals, games of the year which is fine. Um, I just was extremely conservative by breaking off everything into its like own separate bankroll, not only by league, but then by preseason versus week to week or game to game, day to day. Uh, and I, and I, it slowed down my, I think, bankroll building process. Uh, and then that also leads to people that are, I, I bet, I flat bet too frequently. And uh, that's something that for people can, you know, look up Kelly Criterion and, and dig some kind of uh do, do some math. You can look at some examples. There's tons of stuff written about it. But ultimately, you know, you should be betting more when your perceived edge is higher. You should be betting less when your perceived edge is smaller. And I was flat betting probably like 80% of my stuff. That might be a little high, but um, 
maybe it was like two thirds of it for a long time. And I wasn't fluctuating enough. And, you know, a lot of that 67 or excuse me, a lot of that 33% was winning at a rate that I, I could have capitalized more on and I didn't. So those are some of like the bankroll stuff that I think I learned the most from. And then how am I applying it today? Um, I, I would say the, the, where I probably learned the most is that when I've had really big edges, I just haven't been afraid to really step out and, you know, a lot of people's example is the Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor fight, where it was just like one of those things that you don't want to call it free money, but it was really close. And then there's another fight coming up, I believe, against the Logan Paul or something. You can lay mm-hmm. minus 800, minus 900 on Floyd Mayweather against Logan Paul. Like, I, like those types of opportunities. There's been a few times I've had some good information on. I don't even bet golf, but I've had like a golf matchup thing where you know I probably bet five times what I typically would on a golf matchup. I just had to trust and, uh, or like even like Bitcoin as a, in, as a asymmetric bet back in the day, I just was like, well, this goes to zero fine, but I need to, if there's, if there's a 50% chance this goes, you know, 10, 15, 50, a hundred X, I just have to have a lot in it. Like those are the types of things now. It's like, I think I, that process, the first five, six years versus the last five to six, I've, I've kind of learned where to take a stance and really, um, take bigger risks when it was necessary. And I've just been able to kind of assess when those necessary risks were, were worth taking. Been plenty of times too, where I stepped out and totally lost. So, I mean, it happens, but um, hopefully more often than not, those ones are going to cash. And so um, just kind of being able, I think the ability to assess when those opportunities present themselves is kind of the key, right? Otherwise you're just guessing like, I really love this, but well, why you need to have some reasoning and like historical data to back it up or whatever it may be. But uh, yeah, I think that's kind of sums it all up by now. Yeah, to your point about sometimes you go out on a limb and it doesn't work. It, I think it ties back to what you said. If we have, you know, aces going heads up against kings in a poker game, you're still going to lose, say it's roughly 18% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're sitting pretty, but that's, that's much more than a non-zero chance that it still doesn't go your way. So yeah. I'm reminded of another lesson I took from David Molinsky was generally betting. I think of it as like a four, five, six methodology within bankroll management where a multiple of five would be a standard unit. If something's worth betting, then it's probably worth at least a four or 80% of a unit. And you rarely have an edge so big that you should go beyond 20% extra from that standard unit. So that would be the six. Interesting. And different types of bets can warrant different bet sizes. So that's not to say bet the same amount on an NFL side as a prop that shows crazy value or in running in college basketball. So have your bet unit sizes in place for different types of bets and be, you know, fairly um, buttoned up there. But then whenever you think you have a massive edge, you question it. Sometimes you do. I mean, one of, I, I think I just looked this up. One of the worst bets I've actually made actually would be something that won last year in the Super Bowl. I found a rogue plus 165 on under two and a half players to attempt to pass. I think that should have been minus mm-hmm. 165. There, there was something really fishy there. I paid it's, it out. I got yeah. like a sore thumb. And, and yeah, they, they paid out, but I, I felt like I didn't bet nearly enough. I was kind of stuck yeah. to my framework of, okay, well, this is a six on that four, five, six scale. But really, how often do you find that big of an edge? That line is, you know, maybe 130 cents in the wrong direction. And yes, it could still lose. They could run some sort of trick play, but you probably want to know when to make that framework. And it's important to have a framework, but you want to know when to keep it flexible at the same time. So when I said flat betting, it was a lot closer to like a four, five, six thing versus like a three, five, ten 
15 things. So, uh, again, I don't want to like push anyone over the edge either, but if, if you see a market that is on a prop in the Super Bowl minus 165 and you can get plus 165, that difference is what worth way more than any edge you'll really ever find, like maybe a couple times a year, right? Like this is mm-hmm. such a significant amount. Like off the top of my head, what is it going to be like 65% or so implied on that? Let me see. Uh, no, not even 62.3. So, you know, on minus 165, 62.3, but at 165, you're, you know, only have, you're getting break even at 37.7%. So like, this is just this huge edge that you'll never find anywhere else. Those are the times you need to like the difference between five and six, because you have a market to compare it to where you know that, Hey, this is just probably mispriced or whatever. You got to go like 15, <laughs> like you just have to like suck it up and do it. And there's, there's, I guess times where you love a player, you do show an edge and, but you don't know why. And those are the times you definitely want to be cautious. So I, I think that's right in a sense that, yeah, the market sometimes is just going to disagree and you're probably wrong in those cases. But if you have other reasoning, like if it's actual like inside information or, you know, news on a quarterback in the whole game that you know is not going to play, but everyone else thinks is going to play, then you just have to take advantage of it. And, you know, um, only going 20% higher in those instances, I think is too cautious. So, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting though. I think in general, it's a good approach for beginners regardless, because most people don't know how to calculate or quantify their perceived edge anyway. But something as simple as, hey, this Super Bowl prop should be minus 165. I'm getting plus 165. Like, you just have to fire away at that. And it's when it's as easy as it was, you're like, man, why didn't I bet more? That's exactly what everyone thinks after the fact. So, um, at least you lived and learned. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's pretty unlikely that that'll pop up again. But if it does, I'll be ready to pounce in a much more aggressive fashion. So, yeah, yeah uh, not not going to regret it too much. I did enough shopping to spot the line that most people probably didn't spot or else it wouldn't have been priced there. But at the same time, there's a way to take it up a level if and when we see that kind of value again. Goodbye. All right, we'll leave it at that for now. Thanks to Preston for his time. If you like his insight, make sure to check out his new show, Last Word Cheetah. And if you enjoyed part one of this conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, if you're interested in a real-time conversation with me and the Dimers.com community on all things sports betting and maybe some beer as well, check us out on Discord. I've dropped a link in the show notes. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week for part two of my conversation with the sports cheetah. And until then, let's bet well. Whatever you drink, let's drink well. And let's be well. Mm